Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have the first of two interviews with Rage Against the Machines, Tom Morello. At the time of this interview in 1993, Morello was 29 years old and was out on tour supporting the band's self-titled first record. In the interview, Tom talks about the pushing of an anti-censorship agenda, the Lollapalooza t-shirt debacle, and how they're not just public enemy for white kids. As always, we have music critic Mark Allen at the helm conducting the interview. If you'd like to support the show, please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. There, we post other content and information not available on the podcast. If you'd like to read the transcripts for any of our episodes, please head over to our website at thetapesarchive.com. We'll jump into the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. The Tapes Archive is proud to be sponsored by the true crime documentary, Dead Man's Line. You've got a hundred armed officers around here trying to get a shot at me. I dared them to shoot me. I didn't go down there to be a buffoon. I went down there for vengeance. And God God, I'll have vengeance. In 1977, Tony Karitsis kidnapped a mortgage broker and held him captive for three days. For the first time ever, the media was able to cover the event live. To some, Tony was a hero. To others, he was a crazed thug. Dead Man's Line, the true story of Tony Karitsis. This award-winning film is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm so fine. Uh, first thing I want to ask you about is there was a rumor going around here that you guys were, were dropping off this tour and canceling your tour, but I'm taking it this is not true. Oh yeah, it's absolutely not true. We um, canceled seven dates from the um, from our headlining tour with uh, Quicksand. I'm sorry, can you hold on just one yeah, second, please? Um, Brad, our little drummer boy, hurt his, uh, he had a um, sprained muscle in his spine, and the doctor said he just had to rest, so he home for about a week and a half, and he's uh, hopefully all healed up for the beginning of the Cypress Hill tour. Is this a good match? Oh, I, I, I can't wait for it. I mean, not just um, Cypress Hill, but, um, you know, Seven Year Bitch, my favorite band. And we've played some shows with Funk Dubious before. And I think it, it's, uh, we're, we're covering covering a lot of territory, and it'll give us uh, uh, an opportunity to play to, um, you know, a real straight up and down hip-hop audience, which is what we've tried to do in the United States, with the exception of the... Lollapalooza tour and the uh, couple of little runs we've done on our own. Our three U.S. tours have been with uh, Public Enemy, House of Pain, and now Cypress Hill. So keeping our uh, connections with the hip-hop community intact is something that's very important to us. Do you think Rage Against the Machine is like the public enemy for white kids? <laughs> I wouldn't say I, I would... Uh, certainly wouldn't limit it to white kids. I mean, our, our audience is pretty ethnically diverse, but we do we do speak to some of the same injustices and inequalities the public enemy does, uh, but we do it with guitars. And so it's not... Um, well, I think the public enemy has... I mean, when, when we played with public enemy, two-thirds of the audience is white at many of the shows, which is interesting. But the directness of the message is something which we have in very much in common with public enemy. And due to the fact that we do 
you know, playing aggressive, sort of punk rock oriented music. Uh, it's inescapable, <laughs> you know, that a sizable percentage of the audience will be fairer skinned, but you know, we've never limited ourselves to that because of the band's ethnic diversity and because of the music, uh, because of the musical diversity draws from you know, some traditionally non white genres. You know, we've made every effort to uh, keep our, to, to have our audience be as, uh, you know, broad-based as our influences are. Mm-hmm. You described yourself in some of this biomaterial as a socialist rock musician. So can a socialist rock musician make music on a major label? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's, part, that's obviously no accident. That's part of the, uh, you know, that's part of the strategy. I have no uh, sort of elitist illusions about the romantic purity of uh, independent labels. We're trying to do something that no band on any independent label has ever done, you know, which is to uh, substantively affect the uh, fulcrum of power as it, as it affects our audience. In order to do that, we've decided to cast the nets wide, you know, and reaching angry young people from Prague to Belfast to, uh, you know, Indianapolis. Do you think that, that your audience, I mean, I'm sure that there are some people there who are really seriously, you know, uh, there's a lot of injustice in the world, and I'm sure that there are some people who are incredibly affected by it that come to your shows. But do you think that there are a lot of just, you know, suburban white kids, uh, or suburban kids, forget the white, all right? Yeah. Suburban kids who are just, you know, kind of going, yeah, I'm mad, I'm mad at my parents. They won't give me, they won't give me enough allowance, you know? <laughs> it's always been our intention not to strictly preach to the converted and that reaching people and exposing them to a new set of ideas uh, is something that's very important. Now, some of those people are going to take something, some of it away with them, and some aren't. You know, that's, you know, we, have no, we have no control over that. But reaching those people is very important. I mean, I was, uh, I was a suburban kid. In my local record shops, I had nothing to choose my choices were limited. Basically, to the musical spectrum ranged from Kiss to Fleetwood Mac, you know, and Donna Summer. And, <laughs> and everything in between, yeah. <laughs> and, that was, and that was about it. Um, and, you know, there was, no, there was no minor threat. You know, there was no, you know, nothing like that until the, um, you know, until the, the years late, the clash of the sex pistols filtered through. So it's, you know, it's really our intention to find those angry young boys and girls out there now and start, um, and start you know, organizing, which is what we're doing on this tour. We're attempting to highlight the uh, Leonard Peltier case. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and um, and pushing an anti-censorship agenda where we're passing out at the shows. Literature, basically five points on how to uh, stir up trouble in your hometown <laughs> with regards to the issue of censorship. It's basically how to organize a successful boycott of record retailers who, um, who have bowed down to the censors. Because uh, it's our belief that uh, that you know the, the censorship battle can be won at the uh, at the retail level. So far, all of the pressure on the record chains of the mom and pop stores has come from the PMRC and the you know, right wing fundamentalists who are you know, well connected and well funded. But they're not the ones that buy records. People in the Lollapalooza audience, the Cypress Hill audience, and the Rage Against the Machine audience, who by um, basically making an example uh, of a few record shops in their community that have uh, bowed down to censorship can I turn the tide back one record store at a time. Can you give me a, a detail or two? Yeah, first is identifying uh, the record shops in your community which either refuse to sell parental advisory stickered albums to people of all ages. Well, right now there are over 3,000 record shops in the States which refuse to sell uh, stickered albums to minors, which I think is a travesty because you know when you're 15, 16, 17 year olds are 
or you know even younger than that, are, are beginning to sort of put things together and see where they fit into the world around them, and to deny people, you know, of that age where you, where they may be becoming politically aware, music from confrontational anti-establishment artists is criminal. I mean, and that, that to me is really the whole point of censorship is to, um, you know, deny access to. To young people of angry music, <laughs> or music that questions the status quo. Uh, secondly, once once you've identified the um, the offending record store, to ask them to basically do the right thing, support the First Amendment, and um, and whether it's stock records that um, you know, blacklisted records or not, keep them in an 18, you know, or keep them in like sort of a, a pornography section of the uh, of the, uh, of, the uh, of the shop. And if they refuse to do that, which they probably will, and a lot of this is based on the assumption that they don't take young people seriously, is to teach them that they should. Um, and by passing out flyers at your local high school, junior high, college, or um, at local rock shows, or you know, when national acts come through, anywhere, or dances, wherever record buyers gather, simply pass out flyers and say, boycott uh, X you know, records. Uh, they Does this include like Walmart and Kmart for not stocking marijuana? Absolutely. Okay. There's some of the principal offenders and some of the ones that need to be dragged down. Obviously, record stores do not care about the First Amendment, or they wouldn't be so eager to bow down to the censors. And but also, obviously, I don't believe that they are ideologically concurrent with the uh, groups like the PMRC that claim you know, NWA records or Rage Against Machine records are you know, causing the moral decay of our society. They just don't want the hassle, and the idea is to give them a bigger problem and to start and to, and to start chipping away at what they do care about, which is their profit margin. When they become less competitive with the record shops in their area, which are doing the right thing and selling any record to anybody, um, then we'll get their ears. And also, I think a, a, a key part of uh, any successful boycott is picketing, you know, picking uh, some uh, public property. And on a week, you know, weekend afternoon during heavy record buying hours, you know, just you and a couple friends or as many people as you can get just carry the same placards and say, X record store support censorship, you know, boycott them, uh, is really going to make an impact, not only in changing the record store's policy, but in helping uh, young people to really taste their own power and to realize that, that just sitting back on your couch and complaining about censorship or complaining about other problems in your school or your community or in the world in general isn't enough, but getting up and acting is, uh, is what needs to be done in order to achieve results. And this is, a, I think, an important first step because censorship is an issue which, uh, which directly affects, it, it's kind of domestic repression which directly affects our audience. I know we're supposed to keep these to 15 minutes, so I'll try to uh, get this in, but I, you, you bring up so many good points, it's really hard to, <laughs> to sit here and go, well, yeah, okay, next question. Um, uh, yeah, what, I'm, what I'm interested in, really, though, is how do you know you're right? You know, I mean, how, do you, how, how do you know that you're right? You know that that this is the thing to do, and that uh, that you know maybe it's maybe it's not a good. And I'm just playing devil's advocate here because I believe uh, I agree with you. I think right. you know music should be available to everybody who wants to listen to it. I don't right. think anybody ever got hurt by ideas. But right. but how do how do you know that that you're right? That you're telling kids the right thing to do. Well, I mean, with regards to the issue of censorship, there's never been one shred of scientific evidence that has demonstrated that any lyric from any rock or rap record has ever adversely affected the behavior of any individual, period. And so then, you know, with that being the facts, then you have to start uh, uh, 
analyzing why it is that the censors, that those who would censor, are attacking this music. And I think that there's a racist element to it. For example, the head office of Music Land has uh, sent out an edict to all of the different branches with a blacklist of records. The vast majority of our, our rap artists, and it excludes like Andrew Dice Clay and people like that. You know, not. I don't want to get into the, the specifics of the, the, the validity of the different kinds of different kinds of art form, but but I mean I, there really is a there really is an ideological agenda behind the pro censorship movement and keeping confrontational music out of young people's hands. I think is paramount. It's really all about power because in order to exercise our right of freedom of expression and our right of, to um, exchange ideas, we have to exercise the power in order to do it. And right now, the other side has been putting, has been responsible for most of the pressure. There are some really good anti-censorship groups out there. Rock Out Censorship is one in the Midwest, so is Parents for Rock and Rap. But they're adult organizations are organizing it, trying to lobby on more of a legislative level. And what we want to do is, is encourage street action you know, by people in our audience to not only draw them into the political arena, but write this particular wrong. I imagine that, that a large majority of, of your audience is in their 20s, uh, maybe early 20s, maybe teens, whatever. Is this music going to last for them? Are they going to be listening to it when they're 35? <laughs> I have, I, sir, I can't make that prediction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I, I really can't say. Now, really this, can't. Is, this is something that, I, that I've been thinking about for a long time, because I'm 34 years old, and, and you know, I... I even though I don't listen to much of much old music anymore just because of my job, I wonder, you know, I know I can go back and listen to the stuff that I liked and pretty much think that, that yeah, I was right, you know, this was good. And I wonder if your audience is going to be able to do the same. And, I, and, and not just you, but, but uh, you know, rap audiences and things right, like right. that. Is this going to be the music, you know, they're going to look back on their on their teen years and go, mm, I don't know. Yeah. Well, what, I mean, I, I think the, the important test is going to be what the society we live in looks like in 15 years because of the people in our audience. We're fighting on both a, you know, a, an ideological and, and a real plane, and the kind of organizing that we're doing now will manifest itself in constantly recreating the society that we live in, and by not shying away from uh, confrontation, and by not shying away from struggle, hopefully it is you know, us and the people in our audience who are gonna make, um, you know, this society 15 years from now look very different than it does today. And that will be the background you know, uh, against which they'll be able to judge their, uh, their musical taste at, in their early 20s. Two other things, I'll let you go. What do you think your reaction's gonna be the first time somebody tells you, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me? No, <laughs> I've heard that more than once. <laughs> I've heard that more than once already. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> um, We've heard that at a couple of shows. Yeah, the record company? <laughs> oh, no. no they, they're just, they've been beaten into submission. Uh -huh. <laughs> they, uh, I'm not sure how much will they have left in dealing with it. Both the record company, I believe, knew what they were getting into, but certain organizations like Lollapalooza, for example, really did. I enjoyed the tour very much and was glad, glad that we did it. We got to play with a lot of you know, good friends and artists with integrity all summer long. That's fine with me. But, you know, Lollapalooza really got um, sort of outflanked, you know, from the left. <laughs> you know, they sort of see themselves as this extremely progressive touring entity. And, you know, when we called them on the, did you hear about the whole T-shirt? No. What a debacle. What a, the law, we, we normally sell our shirts for $10, $10 for short sleeve shirts, $13 for 
long sleeve shirts because we know how much it costs to make them and right. we're not going <laughs> to rip our audience up. And the official Lollapalooza shirt was $23 and they would not let us undercut their $23 price. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we said it would be better for everybody if you just let us sell our shirts at a fair price. You know, they fear that, you know, given the average audience member given the choice between a $10 shirt and a $23 shirt might choose the $10 and their profits would be cut. I'm sorry, can you hold on one second? Yeah. Hi. That's telling you, get off the phone, you got another interview. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so what, so what was the upshot of this with the... There, with the okay, I'm sorry, just one second. I just okay. want to make sure I catch the next interview okay. before he goes complaining back to the record company. Okay. So the, the fallout of this was um, we didn't sell shirts on the tour because we couldn't sell them at the price and every day from the stage, Zach pointed out exactly where the money from that $23 was going, what percentage was going to the local promoters, what percentage was going to the land proprietor who do nothing but show up at the end of the day with a truck to carry away the kids' money, you know, told them just what a rip-off the $23 t-shirt was. The result was that Lollapalooza t-shirt sales plummeted dramatically uh, all summer long, and they learned a lesson. <laughs> I don't know if they learned a lesson. They were they were taught a lesson. They sat in class. They were school. <laughs> uh, we'll see next year what they, what they. But I think that they just weren't ready for that. Ready for that. Well, you know, nobody really thinks that that a band is going to come out and and you know be true to its ideals because you know there just aren't very many people who are true to their ideals yeah. anymore. So. Yeah. One other question, I'll let you go. This is for another story I'm working on. What do you think music's going to be like in the year 2000? Not your music, just music in general. Right. Um, I'm, just, I'm looking looking ahead to see what music's going to be like on our next album. <laughs> <laughs> my, my principal concern is that who would have guessed ten years ago that. You know, bands like you know, Primus would be selling a million records now. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that was so completely unpredictable. You know, I've, I've, the only thing I'm fearing is is a return to new wave. That's really like my my one dread. Is that, Why did you get rid of all your skinny ties? Before? <laughs> That's really my one fear, and I'm sure it'll come around and it'll be very hip and fashionable. But I'm scared of it. Uh, by the year 2000, I mean, I'd, hopefully there will be a uh, healthy dose of musical experimentation and challenging music put out by artists. You know, that's what I can hope for, but but who knows? But we're kind of in a, a period now where you have artists who have something to say, you know, reaching a lot of people, which is rare for the most part in, you know, the history of history of rock music and I'm sure there'll be a, a glam backlash sometime in, in the future. Uh, but it's just important for artists to you know to do something say to stick to their guns and to and to keep you know what what we're trying to do is is to really sever the bonds between art between our music and entertainment and really forge bonds between music and activism in a way that you know that hasn't been done before and so we're really exploring uncharted territory in that regard and so music may be so a completely different thing you know in a in a completely different world by the year 2000 and so all that. And as you're hanging up here, uh, uh, is Adley Stevenson the inspiration for all this? Answer from, <laughs> from Libertyville. Uh oh, you've done your Libertyville read. Oh, I just knew he was the man from Libertyville. I'm not old enough to, you know, I wasn't born at the time that he was running, but I still, you know, I, I've seen enough Adley Stevenson stuff to know. Right, right. Now, heavens no, I think that Adley Stevenson is much too, uh, much too middle of the road for our, uh, our political page. Okay. Uh, tell the record company that, that you can, uh, that interviews with you cannot be done in 15 minutes. I'll I'll let them know. Sorry about that, but I appreciate your time. Thanks, man. Take care. Okay, bye. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.